Good evening. <clears throat> it is wonderful to be here with you this evening. Now, for those of you visiting with us, we're certainly thankful for your presence here tonight. All this week, we've been talking about teaching and teaching in the assembly and becoming better and more effective teachers. Um, our elders here have made it a focus and a point that our teaching be elevated. And we're very thankful for their uh, encouragement in that and what they want for that. Ultimately, what they're doing is setting an expectation. They're setting a bar for us as men and teachers that we need to get to. And we raise that bar every time we elevate our teaching so that other people in the congregation is built up. Tonight, we come to the point where we talk about presentation. And presentation is the culmination of all the study and the research uh, outlining of lesson, all the things that have been talked about this week, it's the culmination of all of those things. And I'm going to tell you this evening that I am by no means the authority on presentation. Uh, these are some things that that we talk about tonight. Many of them have been mentioned throughout the week already. Uh, but as we've studied some of these things, some things that will just help us in our presentation, ultimately remember what our responsibility is. Whenever we look in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see an example of Ezra and the priests guiding God's people through a presentation of His Word. And you'll notice there it says that it caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. There's a formula here, you see. You see the formula, it says they read distinctly. That word distinctly is translated primarily three ways in the Old Testament, and that is declare, distinguish, or separate. If you could put in a word what, that, what it means is to clarify. They clarified God's word. They gave the understanding of God's word. And then what happened at the end, at the end of all of it says they all understood. It wasn't just a matter of them just reading God's Word. It was a matter of giving understanding. And whenever we present our information and our study that we have, we are giving understanding. If we've gained all of this knowledge, all of this time that we've spent in research and study and outline, and then we present that information, if there is no understanding, are we really teaching? Are we really getting across what God wants if nobody understands it. So presentation is extremely important that you understand what I am saying to you. And as we get up and we teach people, they have to be able to understand those truths that we're trying to draw out from God's Word. Our teaching has many purposes whenever you look in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Ultimately, one of the things that we have got to realize as teachers and in presenting information is what we're doing and giving understanding is resting people's faith in the power of God. I want you to notice that Paul acknowledged something there. He said, when I came to you, I didn't have excellency of speech. Paul acknowledged that he wasn't a great orator. In all reality, public speaking is not teaching. There are many wonderful public speakers, but they're not teachers. Our job is to teach 
Our job is to give understanding, and that's what we have to do. Paul didn't have great public speaking skills by his own profession, but he was a good teacher. The way you present information has to do with who you are. The way you present information has to do with your personality. This evening, if I lined tables up here and had ways for people to cook, and I gave all of the guys that have preached this week these ingredients, bacon, hash browns, onions, jalapenos, sausage, and eggs, they would all probably present those to you in a different way. There would be varying degrees of presentation of how you would get that. Jason would probably just throw everything out and give you bacon. Craig would, or Carrie is going to throw anything vegetable related out. No vegetables. If given these ingredients, I'm going to give you my greatest culinary creation. I call these breakfast bombs. I take all of that stuff, I wrap it up in a bacon weave, I slice it up and fry eggs. Fry an egg and throw it on top of it. It's all different. But there's a truth in there. We're all preaching from the same ingredients, the Word of God. And how we present that information is going to vary from person to person. But ultimately, that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing that there's many different personalities in teaching and how we present information. Sometimes what, so, uh, sometimes someone presents something in one way that is a little more understanding in another way. That's part of what we have here and the objective being to feed the flock. Paul was trying to get back to Jerusalem in the day of, for the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 20. The Bible says that he was in Miletus and he called the church, the elders from the church at Ephesus over. And he's giving them a warning. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. He was giving the responsibility of overseeing the flock, but also feeding the flock. And that's what we do here today. Paul goes on to warn them in this passage that not long after that there were wolves would come in and they would pick off the flock. Not only would they come from the outside, but that they would come from the inside. And he's saying, you need to feed the flock because of this. You need to prepare their minds. They need to understand God's will. And that's what we're doing here today. We're looking at presentation, and there's three different things or three main areas of focus that we want to look at. And it's all about how we communicate. It's our words spoken, the tone of those words, and our words read. Up to this point in your lesson and all the things that we've talked about this week, it's all about words read. As you've done your studying, you've done your outlining, you've done all of those things, it's been about reading those words, but you've not spoken them. You know, the average words per minute read is 200 to 250. The average words per minute spoken are 100 to 125. For women, it's 125 to 150, just, just so you know. But for men, it's 100 to 125. You read twice as fast as you speak. And we've got to think about that connection of changing from read 
to spoken. But most importantly, we have to really consider the words that we speak, that they be in accordance with God's will. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, it says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The words that we speak should be in accordance with, with what God says. They shouldn't be outliers. They shouldn't be in contrast. They should be in alignment with what God says. Secondly, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. This is Paul giving instruction or admonishment. He's talking about in our everyday speech, but what we do here isn't outside of that. The words that we use should be seasoned with salt. And sometimes whenever we have our notes and we've typed all of these wonderful things out and they sound good when we read them, but then when we say them, they don't sound the same, do it. Have you ever, have you ever made that statement that after you say something, you say, that didn't, that's not how it sounded in my head? There's a reason for that. When we read words in our head, it's not the same as when they come out. Your tone reveals the attitude of your heart. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you think when Paul spoke these words, do you think he just stated it as everyday fact, like the sun rising and the sun setting? Do you think when Paul spoke these words, he was just saying, you know, here's the facts? Or do you think whenever he spoke these words, he believed, and in all honesty, his tone was one that showed the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That in that power was the salvation for all mankind. And do you think Paul just said, "Eh, it's a pretty, pretty powerful thing, you know. That's what God uses to save us. Or do you think he was a little bit excited about that fact? Do you think his tone went up and down whenever he preached those words? And Acts chapter 20, <laughs> 24, well, actually, Acts chapter two and 22 and 23, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's been essentially working with the Pharisees and Sadducees and contending with them. And verse, in chapter 24, he gets to go before the Roman authority, and he talks to a man named Felix, and he's talking to him about all of these wonderful things of Jesus Christ. And verse 25, it says there, and he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Felix trembled. And answered, go that way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Do you believe that as Paul was reasoning and judgment and intemperance and righteousness, that he was just laying out the facts before Felix? Or do you think Paul was passionate about what he did? That he had good inflection in his voice? That he was trying to reach into Felix's soul and convince him of what God had done through the blood of Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us exactly that he was successful, not by what Felix says, but what by what Felix did. It says that Felix trembled. So Paul had reached his soul with God's word. 
Paul had presented that information in a way that Felix recognized there was something wrong within his soul. When we read God's Word, I believe that's one of the things that we tend to overlook quite a bit. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, we read about people reading God's Word. In Colossians chapter 4, there in verse 16, it says, And this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also from the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. You see this throughout the entirety of the Bible, beginning to end, public reading of God's Word. How much time do we put into reading God's Word out loud? You read God's Word, it is the foundation for everything that you've done. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Whenever you're studying God's Word, you're building your outline, it's all fundamentally foundational based upon those written words. Is the first time that you've ever read those words whenever you step up behind the pulpit? That you can't give the proper sense to what it is? When I first started teaching, one of my greatest faults was I would give, go, I would practice my lessons. And I'd go through my lessons, go through my notes, go through and I would audibly work through my, my notes and what I was going to say. And then when I would get to the verse... I would say Colossians 4 and verse 16, and this is honestly what I would say when I was practicing, yada, yada, and then go on into my notes. I'm not kidding. And many times the first time that I ever, had ever read God's word publicly that I was teaching wasn't until the moment I was up there behind the pulpit. That is the very foundation of everything which I have studied. It's the foundation for which all my thoughts and my notes are based upon. If I cannot properly do that, if my foundation is weak, then guess what else is weak? Everything else. Proper reading of God's Word is very important. One of the things that I noticed many years ago, or a few years ago, when we lived in Fort Worth, we did a monthly study with the kids. And at the end of the study, we did what we called sword drills. All the kids sat down with their Bibles and you would call out a verse. And the first kid to stand up and read it would get a point or they'd get a quarter or something like that. And I noticed that Aiden was pretty, he was good at reading and he was better at reading uh, than a lot of kids his age out loud. And that had nothing to do with Aiden's ability. It had nothing to do with anything that I did as a parent. What it had everything to do with was Aiden had been in oral reading in school since he was in the first grade. He was practiced at it. And he could read very well publicly. And there's some pointers we have about reading. First and foremost, remember those punctuation marks. Treat them like stop signs and yield signs. They should be observed. Think of those things also from a standpoint of breathing. Whenever you read God's word and you see a comma, we're all a little nervous when we step up in front of a bunch of people. Use those to control your breathing. Secondly, make sure you understand the passage. Make sure you understand who wrote it, to whom it was written. Give a little context 
around that passage. If you want to lead into that passage, uh, maybe summarizing a few verses before or summarizing a few verses after, that gives great context and gives much better understanding most times when we're trying to teach. And then finally, I have three things that I think that we can look at and utilize to make our presentations and bring them all together. First and foremost, pray. And I'm not saying when you're walking in the building, having not prepared and praying that everything goes okay. That's not the type of prayer I'm talking about. I'm talking about pray. When you're writing your sermon, when you're reading God's word, when you're building all of this and putting all this together, you praise for wisdom. You pray that God gives you the right words. You pray for all of those things. It should be constantly in prayer that we are edifying the body of Christ. And we should continually be going to God in prayer and supplication for that purpose. Number two, prepare and practice. We cannot emphasize this enough. We've talked a lot this week about preparation and giving proper time for preparation. There's no greater truth than that in presentation. You can do a lot of studying. You can do a lot of outlining and it fail because you didn't prepare in your presentation. When I was younger and I first started teaching, I, I did much like what Carrie talked about the other night. I would be writing my notes and going through my notes and finalizing my outline until midnight the night before. And not one time had I spent any time preparing for this part. And it was very frustrating to me as I would come back and I would walk away from a lesson. I go, I have all this information. It was good information. I had it down. I knew what I wanted to say, but it wasn't coming out right. There's a man in Lubbock. He asked me one time, he said, how many times have you presented your sermon by the time you've given it on a Sunday or a Wednesday? And I was like, none. <laughs> he goes, there's your problem. Spend some time practicing. I come up here, I spend usually, by the time you've heard this, this is usually my fifth time to give this lesson. And you're probably going, well, how bad was it the first <laughs> four times? <laughs> There's been proper and adequate practice and preparation put in before I stand up here. And we all need to spend that time in preparation. And then finally, seek criticism. We oftentimes think of criticism in a negative light. And for whatever reason, we get negative criticism or wrong criticism, whatever the case is. But seek God-honoring and loving criticism. Carrie and Craig will give you good, honest criticism. Seek criticism from the other teachers. That criticism helps you grow as a teacher. When people give you honest, open criticism. If you're married, you have criticism built in in your marriage. And I don't mean that negatively. I'll be honest. You have that built in in your marriage. Your wife is going to be your greatest critic. Because she wants you to be successful. My wife takes notes on every one of my sermons. I hand her my notes. And she writes a critique of every sermon that I do. And it's one of the greatest tools that I have. You can't really see this, but she says things like right here. She says, this is a rocky transition. She knows I got a thing about transitions on my slides. She says here, hey, that's a better transition. 
She says, you need to change this because you forgot to say this. And then down here she says, this was really awesome. Your presentation on it was perfect. There's a balance there. What you don't see is my word or phrase of the day up here at the top. I usually pick out a word or phrase of the day and I repeatedly say it over and over and over again. And she puts it up at the top and tallies it for me. And so it's never the same word or phrase. So I can't, it's hard for me to fix, but it's an honest criticism. And I look forward to after my lesson, my wife handing me those notes and I get to see what I did. And ultimately she wants my success. And if she doesn't understand something, that means that probably most other people didn't understand it as well. So seek that criticism out so that you can become a better teacher. We have a desire to grow as students of the Word of God. As teachers, we should have a desire, the same desire to grow in our role as teachers as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, he's admonishing Timothy, he says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Paul's admonishment here was one that he says, I want you to give yourself wholly to these things. And at the end of all of these things, guess what? Thy profiting or thy progress, thy growth will appear to all. That should be our desire, not only as students of God's word, but that should be our desire as teachers of God's word. My son is nine years old. My youngest child is nine years old. In 10 years, when he's 19, if he's still acting like he's nine, there's a problem, isn't there? If I've not seen progress in my child, there's a problem. Our teaching's no different. We should see progress in our teaching. The elders should be able to come to us and say, I've seen progress and growth in your teaching. If 10 years down the road, there's been no progress or growth in our teaching, there's a problem. We need to set that expectation for each and every one of us to grow in this role so that we can become better teachers, so that we can be honest and rest people's faith in the power of God and feed the flock. Thank you for your attention this evening. I'm going to turn it over to Justin as he's going to talk about engaging the audience. My senior year of high school, I got told that if you wanted to play basketball or baseball, you had to run cross country and track. And so I said, okay, we do what you got to do. And track came around and they started doing tryouts and they said, well, you're not fast enough to be a sprinter. So we try out for long distance. They said, well, you don't really have the endurance to do long distance. So we're just going to try to find a place to stick you. So I ended up on the mile relay team. It's four guys running one lap around the track as fast as you can. And I ended up being the anchor leg on the mile relay. And uh, I thought, well, that's a pretty good position to be in. They must think it's important. And about five track meets into it, my coach said, look, you haven't figured this out. He said, our goal is to have a big enough lead by the time you get the baton that you just hang on to the lead. And after all the good teaching we've had this week, I'm starting to get the impression that the goal is just hold on tonight because everybody hit a home run. And I hope that's not the case. But 
One of the most critical parts of delivering an effective presentation is being able to engage your audience. And we live in a world where we think about all the distractions that our society presents to us. Engaging an audience in this kind of setting is a difficult task. We want to talk about that for just a little bit tonight. As we said all week, as Danny said, preparation and, and practice. Practice maybe even a better word as it relates to the presentation itself is so critical in being able to engage your audience. And it's something that we've got to really work on. I want to make uh, one quick point about audience participation as it relates to this. You know, as teachers, we look out on 100 faces delivering a lesson, and we can tell folks that are engaged in our, in our lesson. You can see people that are paying attention. You can see people are pondering the points you're making. You might see somebody pick up their Bible and turn and, and look at the Scripture that you said. And then we can also see the people that are distracted or the people that are struggling to stay awake and they're nodding and you just wonder when they're going to pass out. And that has an impact on the teacher. Having an audience that's equally engaged in the, in the teaching service has an impact on the teacher. And so I want to encourage everybody, every one of us, to be active listeners and be engaged in the, in the teaching service and know that we make an impact on that. Some of you ladies may never see that because you're not up here looking back out. But know that your participation in that and your listening in that has an impact on us. And then if you're going to give criticism and all those things, you certainly have to pay attention and be engaged in all that. So let's be good listeners. Some people say that retaining the uh, attention of an audience or a congregation or whatever you want to say it, uh, that you got about 15 to 20 minutes. They say 20 minutes is kind of the, the peak attention span of a person. I don't know what the psychology is behind all that, but I would uh, make an argument that there's more to it than that. I think about all of the things that we occupy our time with in the form of entertainment. We go watch a movie and we sit there for two and a half hours engrossed in the movie that's in front of us. Or we pick up a book for all you bookworms and can sit there and finish a book cover to cover. Our boys, if you let them have the Nintendo, there's no time limit on it. They'll sit there as long as you'll let them. And so I would submit to you tonight that audit, the, the attention span of an audience lies more on the presenter than it does on the listener. As teachers, we need to play an active role in, play a conscious role in engaging our audience and holding their attention span. We're going to talk about some ways to do that tonight. I think about, you know, these various movie studios and, and when you hear about a big blockbuster movie, they talk about the budget that went into that movie. And you think about all the many months or in some cases years of preparation and planning and rehearsal and casting and the dollars spent. And they might spend two years building this blockbuster movie to grab your attention for two and a half hours. And we say, well, you can sit through a movie for two and a half hours. Surely you can sit through an hour of church service. But as teachers, we should take that as a challenge that it takes them two years to work on all of this content and presentation to grab your attention for two and a half hours. We should be willing to put in the time and effort to grab your attention for whatever time we need to deliver the message. Engaging our audience is so important. And we can easily do all of these other, other things, but 
as preachers, sometimes we fail to do the things that these things do so well. And we should make a conscious effort to work on that. Your, your presentation of your sermon will determine your audience's attention more than, maybe more than any other thing. And the way that you deliver that and how effective you are in that. It's a critical part. And certainly, there's some things that we can do to understand how to do a better job of this. That's what we want to talk about for just a little bit tonight. Number one is know your audience. You've got to understand who you're talking to. Now, I realize that you may not know every single person sitting in your audience, but you've got to have a general idea of who you're talking to. And success at getting your uh, attention of your audience depends on that. I think a lot about Paul and his um, teachings and his missionary journeys, how he behaved when he was with people. A lot of times when he was interacting with the Jews, you know, he was aware of their backgrounds. A lot of times they were scholarly type people, people that knew the law. And he used that in his conversation, maybe to talk about the law. Maybe he used the fact that he knew they were scholars of the law to say, look, that law was nailed to the cross. You need to be thinking about the law of Christ. He was well aware of who he was talking to. Jason read Acts chapter 17 last night in a different scenario It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. This was a group of pagan worshipers. They had all these various idols or all these various altars to the gods that they worshipped. And they were either religious enough or arrogant enough to even have one to the unknown God. In case we miss somebody, here's one to the unknown God. And Paul recognized that as he came across these people. And certainly this is an introduction. I think I said invitation earlier. This was an introduction, as Jason talked about. But it also demonstrates the fact that he knew who he was talking to. And he, even to the point where he essentially compliments him, he said, Look, I perceive you're religious people. You have all these things. Set up to honor these gods. You're religious people. And he uses that to build a little bit of rapport. He said, you have this unknown God. I'm going to tell you who that God is. And he taught him the God of the Bible. He was well aware of the people that he was talking to. He didn't just walk in like they were Jews and say, look, you guys have behaved this way and you nailed Jesus to the cross. These people might have looked at him and said, who's Jesus and what cross are you talking about? They probably never heard the name before. We've got to understand our audience. We may have a different message that we teach or a delivery method that we teach if we know we're talking to a congregation of believers. Or if we know that there's a significant group of unbelievers, we may have a totally different message. And it's probably appropriate that we do. We have to know our audience and tailor our message based on that. The other thing we have to do is make it personal. The things that we talk about and the way that people interact in a religious setting or not, you've got to make it personal if you want to be able to gain real grounds with people and make a real impression. Relating to, especially in a congregational setting, in a public teaching setting, relating to a big group of people becomes significantly easier if you can make it personal, if you can make the conversation personal. And you've got to relate to people to get your point across. Not every point in your sermon is going to be personal, but if you can weave in two or three or four or five things that you can make personal, you can do a lot better job of relating to people. 
And there's different ways you can do that and things you can do that. You can use pointed, very pointed language. We, asked, we talked about this week the idea of asking questions in our sermon. You can ask questions to help gain attention. You can ask questions to kind of get the wheels turning. But be personal in that. Let me give you an example. We might say this week, what can be done to make the teaching better in our congregation? That's a fair question to ask. But it may be a better question to say, what can you do to make the teaching in Amarillo better? That's a personal question that can be directed to every single person in here, that every single person in here is accountable for giving an answer to. Whether you teach publicly in the assembly, whether you're a listener who should be active in that listening role, you can give feedback and criticism like Danny talked about. Be personal in your question asking. Paul understood this as well, and I like this passage in 1 Corinthians where he actually uses these very words to talk about this, how he, how he needed to make personal relationships with people. He said, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share it share with them in its blessings. He understood the need to make personal relationships. He understood the need to make things personal and relate to people. He said, if I come across somebody that's weak, I'm going to make myself weak because of that. It's not a, it's, it wasn't a fake thing that he did. I envision that as he looked at his life and said, I'm sorry at this. I'm a weak person at this. He certainly gave us examples of that, calling himself the chief of sinners and all the things that he struggled with. But if he showed a weak person how he was weak as well, it broke down barriers. And he said, I'm no better than you. I became weak, and here's my weakness, and we're fighting the same battle together. It wasn't for any kind of vain glory on his part or a pat on the back. He said, I do it for the gospel's sake. The power of making it personal and relating to people, he understood that value. Part of making a sermon personal for the audience is helping them understand why the topic matters. And we're not talking about this broad sense of why this topic matters. We're talking about why does the topic matter to you? And our sermon should have this tension built into them where we can build up this tension to show people why the topic matters. Because then if we're doing a good job, we're going to show them what to do about it. And we're going to Show them what God's will says what to do about it and how you can make corrections to that and improve on that and do better in the future on that. We can't just say because the Bible says so. That should be a good enough reason for us, but that's a little bit of a lazy reason. Because the Bible says so. Let's show them. Let's teach them why. And let's teach them why it matters to them. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The messages that we're teaching should accomplish one of those four things. It should be used for doctrine, 
Why do we do the things that we do? What it was God asked us to do for reproof. Hey, you're doing this. You shouldn't be doing this for correction. This is what you should do to, about that. Change your life for instruction in righteousness. This is what it's about. Christian living. This is what it means to be a disciple. All scripture is given for that. That the man of God may be perfect or complete unto all good works. We've got to teach people why the message matters. And everything that we're teaching should support one of those things. One of the hardest parts of, of this whole conversation is holding the audience's attention. And I realize that there's kind of an art to that as well. And some people are better at it than others. But you've got to make an effort to hold the audience's attention. So we talked about these movies and all these sorts of things. You know, I think about the times I've seen movies that you get interested in pretty quick, and then somewhere along the way they just kind of lose you. You know, and it turns out you think it's going to be a good movie, and then all of a sudden you're just kind of like, well, whatever. I've got a stack of books on my nightstand, probably five or six, that I got three or four or five chapters into and haven't opened them since because just, they just didn't keep me. And I keep thinking I'm going to get back to them, and they just keep sitting there collecting dust on my nightstand. We've got to be able to keep people's attention and keep things moving. Our presentations can't be the way those movies and books are, or we're not going to be effective. Practice. It's, we sound like a broken record, I know, this week, saying prepare and practice. But it's the key to all of this. You've got to keep practicing that. We talk about specifically about giving sermons. Some people... Uh, the way that they practice the presentation part of their sermon is they give that sermon. Like Danny said, he's preached it four or five times. So you get up here in front of an empty audience, and we do exactly what we're doing now, and it helps you. You, you hear the things that sound stupid that you didn't think sound stupid, and you might make an adjustment or a correction. And if you do that three or four or five times, you start to remember your content a little better. And you're not tied to your notes. And it helps you be more effective in your delivery. And you can be more dynamic. And you don't freak out if you take two steps to the right or to the left because the notes are over here. Preparation and practice are everything on, the, on all of these topics that we've talked about. What about enthusiasm? We've all seen preachers that get up and have their notes written out word for word and they stand behind the podium and they begin to read their sermon and they talk about all of the points they're going to make and then they have verses that they read and then they never change the tone of their voice and then they never stop and pause to give you time to think about it and they just keep moving and they lose you because it doesn't seem like they're enthusiastic about what they're talking about. You wonder if they're reading a sermon that they're passionate about or you wonder if they're preaching a funeral. And sometimes you can't figure out between the two. What about authority? We were talking about this last night. The Bible said that Jesus taught as one that has authority. And I think that that helped him gain and hold people's attention. And as teachers, we have a responsibility to be able to teach with authority. Well, how do you do that? You prepare, you practice, you learn your material, you know what you're talking about. So you're not spending all your time stumbling around your presentation and you can deliver it in a way where it seems credible and people know that you've actually studied what you've looked at and are talking about. And you have some credibility in that. You have to do that to hold people's attention. Not being prepared is a distraction. And we've all sat in church services before where 
it was abundantly obvious and clear that the preacher had spent very little time preparing that lesson and even less time practicing the delivery of that lesson. And like Carrie said, Monday night, don't be that guy. It's not effective for anybody. It's not good for anybody. What about pace? Pace of your presentation. It's a, it's a fine line to walk too, but you, you go too fast and you run off and lose people. They're trying to flip pages in a Bible to keep up with the scripture that you didn't give them time to read. And you're four or five points ahead and they don't know what's going on. Or maybe, maybe the other end, you're going too slow and they're bored out of their mind. There's a balance, finding a good pace. Same with content. Maybe you have too much content. We were talking about this this morning as well. You know, you have a certain topics that if you just do a search on the internet for that topic, you get 457 verses. As younger guys, we'd like to throw all those verses in our sermons. We were talking today about the, the need to pare some of that stuff back. Your point, your point got made at verse number 127. You don't need the next 300. So it's a, it's a delicate balance between providing enough information to get your point across and make your point and not having so much information that people are bored and you're going to lose them for the rest of the sermon. Pace is an important part. What about aha moments? You know, we, there's people that are significantly better writer-type minds than I am that do a good job with this. But if you do your sermon effectively, you can, you can build in these aha moments. And you might be making a point and you build up and then you deliver the aha moment. People go, oh, okay, I get what you're saying now. Or the light bulb goes off, however you want to say it. And they're all over the place. And I think uh, one that I think about a lot with this is Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, when he's giving this big speech to these people, he spends the entire chapter in Acts chapter 7 giving this speech about Jewish history. And it sort of of has this tone to it that he's just kind of being complimentary of these people that that are listening to it. That he's just talking to the Jews, saying, this is your history. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about Abraham. We're talking about all these people. And you get down to verse 51, and he said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you killed the Lord. That's an aha moment, and that was effective. It got him killed. So that's uh, certainly an extreme example, but that's what I think about as an aha moment. He convicted him, and you can do that with aha moments. You can educate. There's lots of different ways to hold the audience's attention. Presentation tools. There's lots of presentation tools that we can't cover that exhaustively tonight. We're not, we're not going to talk about a lot about specific software and all the things you can do. There's many, many different presentation tools that you, can, that you can use to do a good job of engaging an audience. One of those being uh, verbal cues or speech-related tools. There's lots of things you can do. I think of humor. You know, some people are natural at humor. Uh, some people, it just doesn't fit their style. But a, a, a good kind of lighthearted joke or a metaphor, uh, especially... If you can make it about yourself, anything self-deprecating is an effective tool to, to let the audience know, hey, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not, I don't have this figured out any better than you do. I'm just trying to teach this. Humor can be an effective tool in that. Metaphors in general can be a tool in that. They're all through the New Testament. Everybody that taught, taught in metaphors of some way. Think about Jesus talking about this pearl of great price. You know, the man that found this great pearl and how he sold everything that he had, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he did that all throughout his teachings. Use these 
uh, speech-related aids use these metaphors to describe what he was trying to teach and get his point across to the audience. It's a very effective tool. Visual aids maybe even more so as an effective tool. PowerPoints like we're doing tonight, whiteboard drawings. Some people like to do handouts with a chart or a graph or some kind of information that's effective with the conversation that's being had. You know, God forbid nowadays we actually pick up a Bible and use that as a visual aid. There's some power in turning the scriptures and looking at what you're reading to people, whether they're seeing it on a board or seeing it in a Bible in front of them. There's all kinds of visual aids that are effective. I, I think about a sermon Mike McCorkle gave back at North Carolina Street. I don't know, it must have been 10 years ago, maybe eight, eight or 10 years ago. And I can't even really tell you a lot of the detail about the sermon, but he was talking about sin and how it had such uh, subtle, I guess, effects or subtle cues that it was there. And he preaches his whole sermon, which is excellent. And at the end of the sermon, he's dressed as a Sunday preacher. And he, at the end of the summer, sermon, he unbuttons his coat and takes his coat off. And his shirt is tattered and cut up and dirty, filthy. And he's got all these different sins written in marker all across that shirt. And that was a visual aid that he used that is very impactful. I don't remember anything else about that sermon. Maybe he'll preach it again this summer when he's here. But I remember the point he was trying to make about sin and how it's such a dangerous thing that sometimes we don't even recognize it. We certainly don't see it in others. It was a very good visual aid for that. Jesus used visual aids as well. This time when the, the Pharisees were challenging as they did on so many occasions, um, they said, do we need to pay our taxes to Caesar? And he said, bring me a coin. So they brought him a coin. He said, well, whose image is on that coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar. And he said, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you give to God what's his. Pay your taxes. Abide by the laws that you live under as long as they don't interfere with God. He used a visual aid to make his point. It's very effective. There's all kinds of different statistics about visual aids. Um, you know, you can read all sorts of different studies. The one that we had in sort of our notes for this study talks about the fact that if, uh, if you're told something, you can retain 10% of that three days later. If you're shown something, you can retain 20% of that three days later. But if you're both told and shown, you're going to retain like 65 to 70% of that three days later. Now, you find all sorts of different numbers there. The, the numbers are probably not the important part of that, but it's almost unanimous in agreement that visual aids have significant impacts on memory retention. So find good ways to use visual aids, whether that's what we talked about or a prop or something that can really get your audience's attention and hold it and be memorable. Jason talked about a conclusion in his talk the other night about making a, a good outline. And we certainly don't want to overlook that in terms of the presentation as well because, you know, you uh, back to our movie analogy, you've, you've been to those movies before that the whole movie's good, and then all of a sudden, bam, it's over. And you're wondering, well, what happened? And you say, yeah, it was a good movie, but the ending stunk. Or the book or whatever. And it just, you just, it just ended and you feel like something's missing. Something's not there. And our sermons can't be that way. And many times we do that. And we don't do a good job of concluding that. And it's a great opportunity to recap the, the thoughts that we're talking about. We spent all week talking about all these important things. What, having a proper motive and desire and the right, 
the right purpose for doing our teaching. And what does it mean to, to build a sermon properly? And how do you do that outline and, and look at Jesus as the master teacher? We've done all these things, and it's a good opportunity to tie it all together. And we miss that many times with our conclusion. It's a great place to summarize. We've all heard the, the, uh, the kind of the canned, well, that's all I have prepared this evening response. Don't do that. It doesn't serve any purpose. It, all it does is make you look unprepared at the end of the day. That's all I have prepared. Well, what else was there to prepare? What are you missing? That's what people think when you say that. Give it some thought and preparation. How can you wrap all this up and summarize it and remind people why this is meaningful? That's what it means to have a good conclusion. And though it's not directly part of a sermon, I suppose, the invitation may be as important a part of, of the delivery and engaging an audience as there is. If we're not going to offer an invitation of Christ, what are we doing? And certainly, the end of a sermon is the appropriate part to do that. The invitation is another thing. Well, I, I don't know how old I was before I realized that, that a biblical invitation didn't go something like this. We never know the hearts and minds of those that are present. Or, uh, you know, the other ones, that's all I have uh, prepared tonight. Or, we haven't spoken on the first principles you know, if, if, if we feel the need to say we haven't spoken on the first principles, we probably need to look at our sermon in general. Because what are we doing? Go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's exactly what we should be doing is preaching the gospel. And so if we feel the need to say we haven't spoken on the first principles, we probably need to adjust our sermon. Because the gospel is in everything. It's, every, it's in all the pages of the Bible. And, and as an effective communicator... To do an effective job engaging the audience, we've got to be able to deliver a decent imitation. You may have the best sermon in the world on paper. You may do a great job on delivery. You may have somebody with a foot out in the aisle ready to obey the gospel, and you might say, we don't know the hearts and minds of those that are present. And they're like, what does that mean? I'm not going down. I have no idea what he's talking about. Is he trying to see what I'm thinking? You can ruin the whole thing. By giving a sorry invitation. I pray that God will bless our efforts in our teaching. It's been a good week. The, we've been really blessed here in Amarillo with men that are willing and desire to do a good job teaching. And I pray that he'll give us wisdom in that. And he will bless those efforts. And I pray that each one of you will understand, and if you don't already now, understand the importance of a good, edifying teaching service and what it means to the congregation. As Carrie said the other night, church growth depends on it. You want to get people and retain people, you've got to have effective teaching. You want to grow people, you want to be a better Christian, we've got to do an effective job of teaching. And I think we've been really blessed here with that. And Carrie and Craig have done an excellent job of making that a priority. And I think the congregation has benefited from that. And that's visible in attitude and in numbers and in love for one another. If there's anything the church can do for you tonight, we want to help you in any way that we can. If you would, make your wishes known as we sing the invitation song.